everyone. Welcome to SACSA's new podcast, To Practice, a practitioner skill building process for the field from two folks who don't know it all, but have and will continue to think a lot about it. Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Red. I'm an Associate Vice President in Student Affairs here at James Madison University. And my name is Kate Radford, and I serve as the Director of Leadership Education and Development at Clemson University. So just to catch you up, in case you have missed our first few episodes, Miles and I used to work together at Clemson, and the office where we worked was about half graduate students. Through the years, we reflected a lot on the training provided to our amazing grad students and came to maybe what is a fairly obvious realization, that we are the host for the practical experience for students. And we bore a great deal of responsibility for helping to develop their practical skills. So this podcast is born of that realization. Since then, we've spent a ton of time thinking together about the practical skills necessary to thrive in student affairs. This podcast is meant to share those reflections, continue to hone our skills as practitioners, and offer a chance for us to intentionally sit down together and stay in conversation. We will do this via a grouping of seasons that will each be based around a specific skill. Okay, thank you for that fine introduction. Also, I'd like if you could tell us about other fine things, mainly what is going on in your neighborhood's Facebook group this week? Yeah, yeah, um, a lot, to be very honest, a lot going on, um, pretty busy place. Um, I'm trying to think where to start. There's just, there's a lot of good material this week. Um, I'm gonna start with what I think is really odd and I kind of just wanna put it out into the world to see if people listening can tell me if this is normal. And if so, I will report it back to my neighborhood Facebook. But people keep posting notices that like people are coming up to their house and taking photos. And they're like obviously very weirded out by that, which is understandable. I would be too. And they're like posting, like, you know, posting their address and then saying someone just drove up and took a photo. And what people have been commenting, they've gotten like hundreds of comments in my neighborhood, but um, is that maybe it's like a, a like a real estate thing? Like people are um, taking photos of their house as like comps for like other sales that have happened. But I just think it's super creepy. So I need to know if anyone knows real estate and knows if that is normal to tell me, because if someone comes and takes a photo of my house, I'm going to be real creeped out. Um, so that's going on. A lot of that happening in the neighborhood. Um, there also apparently was not a coyote sighting because I think that would be really creepy or not creepy, but scary. Um, but there was some coyote hearings, I guess is the, is the phrase we would use. So people heard coyote howling mm. and, um, to be clear, people did post comments to say, are you sure it wasn't just a dog? Um, <laughs> which, which would be my first response. Um, then there were responses back from some very sassy people saying that they know the difference between a coyote and a dog, and they are certain that it is a coyote. Um, and then it really just kind of like unraveled and people were like making jokes about how, like what best like ammunition should be utilized for taking out said coyote. And it got really dark and I stopped following that, that particular line of thinking. So that's going on. Um, but apparently I should probably make sure that our dog Sammy does not go out late at night and run off because there may be coyotes. I don't know. Um, and then probably my favorite post in the Facebook, these happen all the time. There's like lots of teenagers in our neighborhood. Teenagers are not known for being the safest of drivers probably. Um, and people really, really like to call out those teenagers on the neighborhood Facebook. Um, sometimes like in ways that I just feel like are not helpful. Like you could just like go talk to that 
child or not child, that teenager or that teenager's parents, especially if you like know who it is, which often they do, but instead they decide to like blast it on the social media of like red Honda civic with blah, blah, blah plates racing down blah, blah road. And, um, then proceed to also share what they yelled at the car. And then if there was any response back from the car. So it just becomes, um, it's a little much, not, not gonna lie. It's a little much, but that's what's going on in the neighborhood Facebook right now. Hmm. The irony of course, of that happening on Facebook is that certainly none of those teenagers are on Facebook. Um, so exactly. Yeah. They're not on there. Yeah, really just talking directly to the parents. Hey, um, two uh, quick follow-ups. Um, speaking sure. of your dog, Sammy, could you share with everybody what your neighbor's dog's name is? <laughs> yeah, um, well, um, yes, it's also Sammy. So, Oh, oh interesting. Uh, plot twist. Um, yeah, so I think I've mentioned on the podcast already about my two children and um, my oldest child named Sammy at the time he was um, five. And we had gone through a lot of name options for this dog that we rescued, pandemic puppy, Sammy. And um, he, Taylor just really decided that Sammy was going to be the name. And we like, we noted that our neighbor's dog was already Sammy. Um, And that neighbor also has a dog named Sally. So like really confusing, Sammy and Sally. And now we're adding another Sammy to the mix. Um, He did not care and committed to the name Sammy, which we all fell in love with. But what was really funny about it is that when our neighbor asked us (laughs) what his name was, when the first time we like saw her outside with Sammy, Taylor like literally ran away. He was like so embarrassed. He like could not tell her that he had like (laughs) stolen her dog's name. So yeah, Sammy the pup plagiarized dog name. Um, okay. One option that I want to float for this house picture taking thing. So, um, one time when I was an undergrad, I was on orientation staff and I thought it would be like a good Mm -hmm. on our email message board to Mm -hmm. joke that we were going to buy like an orientation house, like that we would all live in. And I thought it would be funny if we took pictures of our advisors houses and then posted them on there and put those up as suggestions, um, which, you know, with many years of hindsight, I still think it's funny. And, um, and so maybe that's what was going on. We did get chased out of the yard by, I was about uh, to say, our, can we, yeah, can we get a follow? Cause I know this story and I know what happened. Yeah. yeah one of our advisors, shirtless husbands, uh, chased us. We also did this at night. So, um, there was, there was that too. Ended up being, I thought like a really nice, uh, bonding activity, uh, between us and, uh, between us and Melvin. Um, but you know, it, uh, so maybe that's what's going on. Just wanted to put that out there. As a- you know, I think a lot about like in student affairs, the joke, right. That like often our families just like, do not understand what we do. Um, like I, I know my parents have still, like a lot of questions my dad asks for my business card like every time I see him because he just like keeps it on him to try to explain my job to people um and I have talked to a lot of people in student affairs who have that experience I feel like that was probably a particularly um clear moment for your orientation advisor that night when um they were trying to explain to their spouse why these students had showed up and were taking photos of their house because that doesn't happen in other fields I don't think you know Right, right. So maybe shouldn't happen in our field, just throwing that out there, but. Oh, I'm not saying it should. 
whether it should or not is separate from whether it's it was funny. Uh, yeah, shout out to Teresa Kiriton, the one and only um, holding it down there at Furman University and her her uh, wonderful and very understanding husband, Melvin, <laughs> um, who happens to have a twin brother whose name is Marvin. Um, Melvin is a, a real hero, I think. I've never met him, but. Oh, for sure. Like really, really lovely person. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, we could talk about that all day, but we'll keep it moving. So uh, our next feature here is uh, a student affairs shout out segment. Um, the originator of this idea is going to feature prominently in this particular shout out. So I'll just put a pin in that for a second. Um, so, yeah, the idea here is that you can uh, you can write in to me at S-U-R-R-E-T-M-D at jmu.edu. Please write in, share a shout out. Uh, we'd ask you to make a donation to an agency that's working uh, on justice in our society. And Kate and I are going to make uh, donations each week for each shout out. Um, and this week, our shouter outer was really abundant in their praise. So we've got two. And these are both from the originator of this concept, Erica Lee. If you know Erica, the fact that she would have originated this concept would be an early person to write in about it and would share two bits of praise for someone comes as no surprise. So the first one is to Kara Snyder. Uh, congrats on your new role at George Mason and this new, new chapter in your life. Your commitment to justice and education makes me so grateful to call you a role model and friend. You're the bravest person I know. And also to Alexis Mikolos, I wanted to give you a shout out as one of the people who make Saxa such a special and impactful place. I love learning about your supervisory style and the way you think. I hope I get to learn alongside you for the rest of my career. Gosh, those are lovely. Thanks, Erica and Kara and Alexis for being great and deserving shout outs. Um, so let's jump in to our topic for today. So, so far we have outlined our supervision philosophies. We've advocated for comprehensive onboarding practices and discussed the critical process of professional development. Um, today, drum roll please, we'll transition to the necessary and complex topic of having difficult conversations. So with that in mind, Miles, can we start here? What um, do we gain from difficult conversations? Well, I don't think that like sort of in a vacuum, difficult conversations are virtuous on their own. And I don't think that we necessarily need to go about looking for difficult things as I shared in my supervision philosophy. I don't know that like looking for problems in other people is the right lens to hold in supervision. Um, because we've been socialized to believe that that's necessary. And I think that that's the wrong way to think about people and their work. However, that being said, there is so much to gain from uh, engaging in honest conversations. Um, I think that the ability to give considered feedback, the three things that we can gain are, and there's, I'm sure a thousand others, but the three things that I have reflected on and thought about for a long time is that engaging in an honest conversation that may in fact be difficult, but sometimes they're not, um, is the other thing. We think that something's gonna be hard and it's not necessarily that way, is an act of care for professional development. If you really believe in someone as a professional, the most impactful thing that you can do for them is to help them continue to grow. And if there is something that you believe is sort of a corrective thought, 
to share that with someone is an act of care. It means that you're watching, you're observing, you're reflecting, you're thinking, and you're committed to them enough to do that. Um, you know, and a disengaged supervisor who is just sort of, um, you know, going through the motions or is, is avoiding those conversations is not doing you as a professional a lot of good and they're not investing in you. Another thing that we gain is that it's a service to our students. Presumably the idea behind this is that either directly or indirectly, it's gonna improve the way uh, that we work to support and challenge our students. And then this is probably a little bit counterintuitive, but I also believe that engaging in an honest conversation is actually the foundation for people believing in positive feedback. If people believe that feedback is based on a real relationship that is grounded in mutual growth and has honesty at its center, then it provides legitimacy to praise. Otherwise, praise can feel totally hollow. If it's not actually grounded in real reflection and real observation and in honesty, then praise isn't actually, then praise isn't actually impactful. It's just sort of words that are being said. It's not actually something that that person is going to hold and going to build towards. Um, so those are the three things. But I also think, you know, a lot of times positive change has to start with a conversation that may be challenging and how to sort of ride the line between um, that sort of honesty, um, but also honoring things that have happened beforehand is a really, is a really um, tricky uh, is a really tricky thing. So. Yeah. As I love that point about um, the necessity for difficult conversations in order for us to really be able to appreciate and hear praise. Cause I think you're absolutely right. I think people think about those as like really, um, I guess, mutually exclusive, right. That like they don't, you don't. And I think you're right that you need both of them in order to, to legitimately feel and believe positive feedback that you receive. And I think like you can give as a supervisor much more um, meaningful positive feedback, right? That's um, that's not just like, you did great, but like you did great because I saw you improve on this specific thing, right? Or I saw this growth in you. Um, that's so much more meaningful and so much more believable often if it comes from um, an observation of like a full growth process. So I think that's a, a very, very good point, Miles. Hey, Kate, I appreciate that. What do you think we get from difficult conversations? Yeah, I mean, I would echo a lot of what you said about um, difficult conversations being um, a, a product and like an input into like investing in people, right? I think it was you that said earlier, maybe in one of our previous sessions about I forget what it was that you mentioned, like it being worth it. I think it was um, maybe about the onboarding process. I can't remember, but like this, the, the relationship, the effort we put in that it is, that it's worth it. And I think that having difficult conversations, I would say is worth it. It's worth that in order to um, make people um, better and to make us better as supervisors. I think it is important to, developing the relationship, right? So what you were talking about in terms of um, it being like an act of care for people to give feedback. I had a, a supervisor that used to say feedback equals love, right? That you only give feedback to people that you care enough about 
to want them to be better, right? Like it's really easy for a supervisor to just do exactly what you described of like avoidance and just kind of going with the flow and like, meh, not really paying a lot of attention. Um, it's actually a lot harder, I think, to give critical feedback and to give meaningful, constructive, like, and positive feedback. Um, but that if I didn't care about you, I'd probably just let you kind of like go through the motions and let it go. Right. But because I care about you, I want you to be better. And so I think if we frame it in that way, um, it does have a lot of power to, to develop people, to develop the relationship, um, to make us sort of stronger as a team, to encourage that sort of behavior as like a team overall. Right. So I think thinking about too, that some of these difficult conversations aren't only happening like supervisee mm -hmm. to supervisor, but like sometimes they need to happen between people. And if you've modeled that, that people are going to be better able to have those difficult conversations, or it's going to feel more normal as part of the, like the office culture. Um, I would also say that like, and maybe this is selfish, but I think it also like improves your own well-being, right? Like you can hold on to frustrations and you can agonize over how to have these conversations that you know need to happen. And that takes like, that's like wear and tear on you as a person that's coming to work and, and having to either hold on to those frustrations or again, to be like overthinking them to the point that they are weighing in on other aspects of your, your life and your work. And so I think sometimes just like taking the first step and having the conversation, even if it feels hard, um, the payoff for that in terms of maybe like clearing the air or working through an issue that is, um, a real problem on your team, um, again, is worth it and can improve, improve your own well-being a bit. I think that that's such a good point about, um, about your own well-being. I think that, um, I don't know, I've, I've, I've definitely like held stuff in or like process stuff, like over process stuff with other people who aren't actually sort of the subject of the conversation. Um, and I, I think that, I think that your context of saying selfishly, maybe it improves your own well-being is that feels like exactly right. And I think it's, um, I think that that is not the reason to have a conversation, but I think it may be sort of the, the release valve as people who are avoiding a conversation. Um, maybe is that sort of release valve to let people know, I already know that this needs to happen. And frankly, for me, it also needs to happen, you know? Um, Absolutely. I think, I think that's real. So Kate, with that in mind, so we're sort of operating off of the idea that there is a lot to gain from engaging in, in honest, what may be difficult conversations. How do you prepare for those? Yeah, um, number one, I wanna own, it. like I've been thinking about this as we've recorded each of these podcasts, like there is sort of a, there's a part of my mind that I'm like, who am I to talk about some of these things? Like I don't do all <laughs> these things super well and I'm feeling that particularly on this topic. Like, I, yeah, I can sit here and tell you all these like things, why I think it's important and why I know it's important, but do I do this well every time? Absolutely not. Um, do I, um, do I often avoid? Absolutely. Um, so I just will own that first, but I think the times where I have done it well, and I feel like I've prepared well for difficult conversations. Um, I, I think like the word prepare is important, right. That I have prepared for them. I haven't tried to like, I guess maybe I haven't let them hit like a boiling point where it's like, I've held it in and avoided it and then all of a sudden it explodes, right? I've actually thought 
critically about how do I want to have this conversation? Where do I want to have this conversation? What is going to be the best way that this information can be received? Where am I going to be the most comfortable um, delivering that, like, you know, maybe feedback and then preparing for um, the space to be able to process? Um, I think there, I can tell you a lot of times where I've done it wrong, right? Like I've um, <laughs> held it and waited until the end of a meeting and then been like, oh, I got to get this out. And then there's like not space to process and actually have the difficult conversation. So I would definitely encourage not doing that, right? Like blocking space and time to be able to have these conversations. Um, I think for me, like considering what your desired outcomes are from the conversation is really, really important. So like making sure that you know, um, you know, you don't know how it's going to go, right. You don't know how people are going to receive information. Um, but I think knowing what you need to get out or what you need to say, what you need to like communicate to people, um, is really important. Cause I think there have been times where I've, um, either like held back portions of what I intended to say or what I intended to need to like work through with people because of how they've responded. And sometimes I think that's okay. Sometimes I think you have to like come back and revisit a conversation. Um, but I also think sometimes like not fully attending to what needs to be attended to occurs if we're not, um, like thoughtful in how we set this up. So I think thinking through like kind of almost like and think back to like buying a house, like what are my non-negotiables, right? Like what do I have? Or like when I search for a job, what are my non-negotiables? Um, I think sort of in that same vein, like what are the things that like I absolutely need to communicate clearly? Um, and then like you have that ready to go. And maybe it's like you write it down, maybe you talk it through. Like I love the benefit of having a like almost hour-long commute to work. Sometimes I like literally practice these conversations in like out loud in my car, um, so that I like think about how they're going to sound. And I don't say something maybe that I regret later. Um, and then also though, like being human, like not practicing it so much that you're like a robot in that space. Um, but practicing it enough that you can, um, yeah, say what needs to be said and, and, and then create space for that conversation. So it's not just like a, here, I'm going to tell you all this and then like have a nice day, but that you're prepared for, um, the necessary follow-up that will occur, that you like really treat it as a conversation, as a dialogue, not as like a monologue of, let me tell you this, like, let me deliver bad news and then like move on. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's exactly right. I think that there's a, there's a difference between preparing and sort of unloading. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, I think that that distinction is really, uh, you know, uh, I think that that distinction is much more clear to the person that you were engaging in a difficult conversation with than you when you were engaging in it. <laughs> and um, so, no, I, I, I agree. Um, yeah. I, I just think, I think one of the hardest things to, de to determine, and I think that this is sort of the bellwether about when to engage in a conversation is, is this actually a performance issue or is this a thing that I am frustrated about? Mm. Um, because I, I think that there have been times where I have let my own sort of ego, which I'm sure is wrapped up in a, a variety of my, you know, privileged identities that have sort of manifested as my own personal frustration about something, as opposed to the conversations where, and I, and I think that this is a big thing. And I think this is another thin line about when you need to like let something breathe, when you need to be able to reflect on it to and determine 
whether it's necessary, but also not sit on that so long that it becomes a blow up. Um, because that is that is sort of our number one thing that we need to avoid in this situation is, you know, like absolutely blowing up in a situation. Um, and so, you know, I think patience in the process is really, really critical. And I think if uh, for me and the way that I sort of iteratively process this is like, if I am feeling actively frustrated about this right now, then I need to figure out why I need to stop and figure that out. Um, before I, uh, before I engage in a conversation that is not going to be beneficial for anybody. Um, and then I also think that a fair amount of dispassion about the process, about figuring out, you know, this is really about student development. This is really about the, the business of operating a, you know, operating in higher education. This is not about me, you know, and, and really trying to, trying to process that through that. Sometimes, you know, Kate mentioned talking things through out loud. I've certainly, you know, practice conversations in my head over runs before. <laughs> and mm -hmm. you know, the run is just like, I'm not actually going to listen to anything on this run. I'm just going to think through how I want to, how I want to have this conversation. And I think that that all relates to like exactly what Kate was saying, like have a plan, understand your desired outcomes, think about non-negotiables, but no, you know, th these are the things that sort of need to be said and then make sure that there is space to, you know, engage in a conversation. I oftentimes find that things are actually really just a basis of, of miscommunication um, mm -hmm. and that it's not, there are many times where I think that something's going to be really challenging and we talk through it and it ends up just being, uh, just being just a product of, you know, busy people going in a bunch of different directions and not really understanding everything that's happening. So. Yeah. You know, something you said made me think, I, um, I think you mentioned the, like, is it just me personally that's annoyed by something, right? Or is this like an actual issue? And I think that for me, that is one of the hardest parts about this is, you know, wanting to, um, to check that, right. Is this just about me or is this like actually a bigger issue? But then oftentimes, like, how do you check that without it becoming, um, like without it feeling gossipy at any level, right? Like, do you talk to a peer about like, is this also something you're observing, but then who is that peer that you do that with? Obviously you're not going to do that with someone, you know, who works directly with the person that you're <laughs> thinking about that with, right? Like you're not going to go talk to, if you supervise, you know, two assistant directors going and talking to those, the other assistant director about this person. Right. But how do you like, how do you check for that without, um, without it becoming something that it shouldn't be in terms of it, like being gossipy. And then also, even if you get that information about, yes, this is like an issue, um, that other people are experiencing. I think one of the really, really important things in giving this feedback or having difficult conversations with people is not to like, don't cop out and like make it about someone else, right? Like someone else doesn't like this about you or someone else doesn't like that you've done this, right? Like own it, own that. It's like, here's where I've observed this. It can be like very objective as much as possible, right? Like this is what I've observed and here's where I've observed the impacts of that. Um, but too many times I see people being like, well, like it doesn't really bother me, but like this has come to my attention or someone else is bothered by this, right? Like sort of trying to soften the blow or, but you're only softening the blow for yourself. You're like, you're making it easier to deliver that versus that's not any easier for the person to hear. And I think that like real honesty, um, again, thinking back to your comments at the beginning about like 
give that feedback in a way that says like, I'm, I'm paying attention and I've noticed this and I want you to be better. And so I might, so I'm telling you, this is where I want you to improve or where I think you can improve. Um, but yeah, don't, um, don't try to make it easier on yourself, I guess is the, is the thing I would say. I think that sometimes that happens and, um, and that's, I think that's problematic, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that, it ends up not being developmental. It just being, ends up generating paranoia. Like, yeah. I mean, I think it, instead of being like, I've noticed this, I want to talk to you about this honestly and openly, it becomes a sort of devil in the dark kind of, uh, you know, kind of feeling uh, for folks. And it's less actionable. You know, there's there's not stuff that, that folks can do with that. And I think that the point that you're talking about, about sort of who to process that with, I think figuring out two things is like absolutely essential and how you think through that you know, like who is a safe person to do that with? Who is someone that you can trust, that you can talk through that stuff with? Anything within a supervision chain is pretty complicated. Um, and honestly, I would not, you know, like talking to your supervisor about it. Um, I've had great relationships with supervisors pretty much my whole career and I feel fortunate, but like the problem is, is talking to your supervisor about it can either seem like shifting blame or it can, you know, it can like create a, you know, more tension and pressure on a situation than you're actually looking for. It can remove your ability to, to sort of uh, resolve the situation in the way that you think is best um, because you've, you know, brought another actor into, um, into the scenario. Um, so fortunately, I think oftentimes looking for like a direct peer or someone outside of the institution um, is really helpful. Um, it was a uh, you know, an absolute gift for the time that we are together to have Kate as my basically always direct peer for, for these things. Um, and frankly, uh, fortunately, Kate is still many, my, my person for these things, but, um, you know, but the other part about that is that you need somebody who is not just gasoline, right? You need somebody who is going to, who like can say, you know, I'm not really seeing that in the same way, or, well, let's think about the context of that particular situation or, oh, but remember that's going on with this person. Um, or actually there's benefits to that that you're like maybe missing. Um, yep. So you want somebody who, again, in the same way that you want somebody to engage in honest conversations with you because that when that happens and that person who you know will be honest with you is like, no, actually that's messed up. Like you like really need to think through that. That's actually affecting my team as well. Here's what's going on. Um, then it it is the sort of legitimacy that you need, right? Like objectivity doesn't exist in the world. Like we don't need to pretend like it does, but we need somebody who is actually going to be evaluating that situation in a like safe and confidential manner um, in order to help with those things. So. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree. Thank you. Um, as what thinking kind of about the how of this or of like when we actually are prepared maybe for starting to engage in a, a difficult conversation, what settings have you found are sort of the most effective for those difficult conversations? Um, I mean, pretty much always like a one-on-one -on -one conversation. I don't think it's like much more. Um, the challenges is like sometimes things happen in real time and need to be addressed in real time. Um, whether I think that that's particularly true of, uh, of like bias incidents um, and need to be addressed in real time. So that you can't always operate that way, but 
I think a one-on-one conversation when you've had time to determine what's necessary to address is really the, the ideal setting. Um, and to try to aim towards that whenever possible is, is really the goal. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that intentional, it also feels, you know, way less, um, jarring and sort of, you don't catch people off guard, right? It's not like a, please come to my office so we can have a discussion, right? If it's built into that, again, if you're doing one-on-ones well and you're investing time in your relationships with those you supervise, hopefully that is a regular time that you are meeting weekly, bi-weekly basis, right? Where um, it doesn't, it just feels much more natural. Um, I think too, like that I mentioned earlier, like not sort of just dropping news and then asking people, you know, the awkwardness of like, now leave my office, right. Or leave all of your <laughs> office. Um, but the like one-on-one space hopefully is like a finite period of time. Like, you know, you have an hour, right. So like you choose sort of when to, um, initiate that conversation as part of that time, but also being ready to listen and ready to process with people and having that time set aside to do that so that neither person is sort of stuck with a, like, I've got to go to another meeting and I really want to talk more about this, um, feeling. So, yeah, I agree. I think, I think a one-on-one is absolutely the most appropriate time. And for me, it's been the most effective for doing that. So, well, um, we mentioned that we always want to wrap up these conversations with a resource to share. Um, so I'll jump in first. Um, as I probably will say with every resource I ever share, uh, like, things I like, things I don't like about this resource. Um, I think that that's the nature of things, right? We can critically consume them and take what is helpful and take uh, leave what is not. Um, but I think a, a book that I have found that actually we read as a division of student affairs, gosh, like, I don't even know, maybe five to six years ago, I'd have to go back and look, um, was a book called Crucial Conversations. Um, and it was written by Carrie Patterson, Joseph Grenny, Ron McMillan, and Al Switzler, um, who are like training and development folks, I think, not necessarily, they're like corporate trainers, um, and they work in the sort of organizational performance uh, sphere, but um, I found parts of this book really, really, really helpful. I mean, I think that particularly the way that they talk about sort of treating difficult conversations as a dialogue um, about like how you actually produce um, a dialogue when, when, you know, either side may want to shut down or stop talking or may um, the stakes might be really high. They use sort of a a model um, that looks like a triangle of sort of when we're talking about what they consider a crucial conversation um, that it does include right? That it is, there's strong emotions, that there is some sort of opposing opinion, um, and that the stakes are high. And I think that that's, those three things are, are things we see a lot in conversations um, with those that we supervise um, when we perceive them to be difficult. So I think there's some good takeaways in that book. I would recommend at least taking a look at it. How about you, Miles? Anything on your end? Yeah, again, I'll echo, not a perfect, not a perfect thing in the world. Um, there's, I'd say a lot of privilege uh, baked into this book, and it's also a very different setting. Uh, but uh, Kim Scott is a, a sort of Silicon Valley person who I think has really codified a concept that is very common out there. Um, and uh, she wrote a book several years ago called Radical Candor, um, which is about the real um, creating a culture of honest conversations within a space. Um, and I think that there is a lot, a lot, uh, to take from this book in terms of, 
the meaning of um, engaging in a culture of honesty in the workspace. So um, I, I think it is it is worth a worth a read uh, for sure. So. Well, with that in mind, thanks everybody for joining us for To Practice, which is presented by SACSA. You can get more information about SACSA, the Southern Association for College Student Affairs, on the various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash SACSA fan page, Twitter at SACSA tweets, on Instagram, SACSA grams. And as I always share, the SACSA alert, which comes out once a month, is a really great information is really great information about the work of SACSA, its members. It's very humanizing. It's great, great newsletter going out there. So thanks, Kate, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Miles. Bye.